listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Happy Wednesday, happy spring, happy one day before the budget, happy hump day, happy whatever you got, grab it. Hi, everybody. How's it going? We got a great show today and lots to debate. Some of you will pull your hair out in anger. Some of you will cheer. Some of you will be very, very angry because you're driving your car right now and you just filled it up with gas. And we'll talk about that. And you want relief at the pump. Gas. Huge topic. Some of you will cry, as I almost did, listening to Yuri Buryakov, who is in the 206th Battalion of Territorial Defense of Ukraine, who I'll play you this conversation. This guy used to be the advisor to the Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko, but you know what he does now? He's fighting on the front lines. And his battalion was the 2nd Battalion into Bucha, where the massacre happened, the atrocities happened. Just one place. And we reached him. And you know where he's off to now? The east to fight the Russians again. In the very, very heavy fighting going on in the east in the Donbass. He's on his way there. And he's exhausted. And he just saw atrocities and he's going to speak to us. And you don't want to miss that. And then some of you are going to cheer Quebec because they extended their mask mandate. And some of you are going to say, how dare you? It's over COVID. And we'll debate that. And the war room is going to drop by, which is pretty great. And they're going to, I love that. Zane and Tom and Tim. Uh, Tim's been sending beer to everybody. So that's kind of fun. That's what it's like to be in the war room with Tim. Beer for, beer for all my friends. So we'll talk about that. And then, and then what's going to happen, like always on this show, if you stick into it, you're going to get a great treat at the end. You're going to get like, who do I want to hang out with? Who do I want to spend some time with today to take my mind off the war and the budget and my mortgage and the gas and the masks and COVID and my aching back and all that crap. And you're like, I just need to hang out with some awesome person. I'm going to say, well, would you like to hang out with Alan Doyle? Like the nicest guy, the beloved singer from Great Big C, the guy who writes best-selling books, the guy who stars in a new musical comedy that's going to premiere at the Charlottetown Festival. Alan Doyle, who basically could do everything, is the coolest guy. If, like, you want to have a drink with one person, you want to party with one person, you want to hang out with one person, just pick Alan Doyle. And he's going to hang out with us. So at the end of the day... As I always like to do, forget the divisions. I always like to have one story that brings us together so we can end up hanging out, having a good time. And we're going to pick up Alan Doyle. And Alan Doyle, as he likes to do, is he going to hang out here and shoot the breeze. So we got it. So that's on the menu. I, I can't wait to. I love Alan Doyle, by the way. I love his music. I, if you've ever been to a great Big C concert, here's what happens to you. Your life gets better. Straight up, you just feel better. And if you haven't been with one, you're like, why haven't I been to a great big C concert? Because you're going to get lifted up out of your troubles and you'll just like, I feel good. That's what music does. But he's more than that. But now let's get back to the little reality. And I told you this yesterday. 
that I have a little red line, a psychological breaking point when it comes to my expenses. What is your psychological breaking point? One of mine is when filling up my car, we are a one-car family, costs more than 100 bucks. And when you pass the $100 range, I everything changes. Politically, I get pissed. And monetarily, I get nervous. And then you start making, should I drive less? Should I walk? By the way, I walk to work now every day. My wife drives. I'm, I'm, I'm walking partly because it's so good. And post-COVID, I'm trying to recover a bit. But, but I don't have to pay for parking. It's fantastic. And actually, there's actually a term for that. When prices go up, economists call this demand destruction. Like a price changes behavior. And economists call this demand destruction. The demand gets destroyed. People look for alternatives. I don't want to pay 120 bucks to fill up my car, SUV. I'm going to walk. I'm going to take a public transit. I'm, I'm going to do something else. And demand destruction changes behavior, and that's how people respond to price signals. And then new products come, and the market or, or, or other forces fill the space. And we're seeing demand destruction because we're seeing your wallet destroyed. 5.5% inflation. Wallet destruction. And the price of gas is leading the way. We have a monster energy crisis. Years ago, Andrew Heinzman and I um, uh, co-edited and put together a book, uh, a series of books. One of them was on energy called Fueling the Future because energy drives the economy, it drives politics, it drives change. And because of the war in Russia, because uh, the war in Ukraine led by Russia, and we'll get to that, that there is a monster energy supply shock. And here's what's happening. OPEC... The Middle Eastern cartel is making bank. They're not releasing that much more oil. The U.S. supply, they're producing more oil and gas than ever. They're the number one exporter. They can't do it enough. And so you are seeing, for all sorts of reasons in the tight market, you're seeing gas prices go up. And they will continue to go up, by the way. We have no, Europe is in a, like, like let me just give you a sense. If you think your price of gas is, is high, you know what they're paying for a gallon of gas in the U.S.? $4.25, sometimes 5 bucks. You think that's bad? You know what they're paying in the U.K.? Pause. $9.77. $9.77. A gallon. Austria and Germany are rationing gas usage. Why? Because they, they're trying to wean off their Gazaprun, which is... Russia, 60% or 40% of their, their oil and gas, or 60% for some c- countries, comes from Russia. 60%. Crazy, right? Imagine paying that. So what are, what are some, some governments doing? Well, you're seeing, for example, in Ontario, which is just about nine weeks away, or under nine weeks, eight and a half weeks away from an election, they're saying, if you reelect us, if you reelect us, carrot, 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 we'll lower the gas tax by 5.7 cents a liter, and we'll lower the fuel tax, including diesel, by 5.3 cents a liter. And we'll do it for six months. 
Here's what Doug Ford promised because he knows this matters. The people of Ontario and across the country have just been getting gouged day in and day out. You see the gas prices just skyrocketing, unprecedented prices. And it's about time that the government starts putting money back into the people's pocket instead of the government's pocket. Which is true. Now, the Globe and Mail wrote an editorial saying this is a crazy thing to do because um, you're incentivizing people to drive by doing that. And you're actually rewarding drivers, not people taking public transit who don't benefit from this. But doesn't matter. This matters to people. This matters to people. But there's a bigger question. These little Band-Aid six-month solutions are not, I mean, they're, they're politically, maybe politically wise. And we'll debate the merits of them. And I'll get your, your thought about this in a, in a minute after the break. Because you've got Jason Kenney in Alberta and Scott Moe in Saskatchewan, and John Horgan in British Columbia, and Doug Ford in Ontario, all basically saying, we're going to cut the debt. We're going to subsidize you to drive. Because the price of gas is so bonkers. And it's by the bonkers all over the world. Now, some people are going to say, oh, Evan, it's the price of carbon. It went up to 50 bucks a ton on April 1st. That's about, that added two cents a liter. Two cents a liter. And in Ontario and Saskatchewan, and Alberta, there's a rebate for that now. Now, eventually, in 10 years, that's going to cost people more, as the parliamentary budget officer said. But I'm going to ask you this. As these provinces are reducing temporarily gas taxes, is it a gimmick or is it necessary? Your thoughts on that next. And we'll dig into it. 7-10-10 or 1-855-633-1010. Your thoughts next. Making sense of the latest news. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. Welcome back to the program, everybody. Let's get, let's hear from you. I'm going to give out the numbers and I'm going to give you the thing that might infuriate you. Maybe, maybe it won't infuriate you. Maybe you'll say like, no, I love this. Here's the numbers. Text me at 71010 or call me at one 855 855-633-1010 or 71010. Do you like your provincial government to do something to temporarily or permanently reduce gas and fuel taxes? Is it a gimmick? Does it do the right thing or the wrong thing? Now, gas prices are gone through the roof. You know that. The Globe and Mail wrote an editorial saying this is dumb. They say, I'll read from the Globe's view. The Ford government's promises the Globe and Mail to cut the province's gas tax by 5.7 cents as of July, June 12th, a June 2nd election, is hardly a first. Um, they've done this four times. Other provinces, like Saskatchewan, will issue a rebate of $100 for each vehicle registered to a resident. British Columbia will refund public insurance fees worth $110 for individuals and $165 for commercial drivers. Alberta is temporarily suspending its 13 cents a liter gasoline excise tax. And the Globe says these are problematic. You got to own a car to benefit. That's a fair point. The more gas you use in Ontario and Alberta, the Globe says, the bigger your tax break. The more vehicles you own in Saskatchewan, the bigger your tax break. New Brunswick's done something differently. They're going to have an income system uh, where they're going to raise the personal income exempt from personal tax by 
903 bucks to 11,729. So they're actually making everybody benefit. But what's your take? Do you, do you think this is a smart idea or is it incentivizing people to do the wrong thing, to drive more and just to help them out? Now, rural and urban is different. A lot of folks say, I need my car. But a lot of people are going to change their behavior. But how important is it to reduce tax on gas? Uh, Rick in London, what's up? You know, here's this guy writing an article, probably lives in Toronto or Ottawa. You know, he can take his transit bus or he can go on a go train or whatever. And here we are in rural Ontario trying to make a living. The prices are high enough as it is. And we're just trying to go from month to month, whatever. And uh, and this guy says, well, we're trying our best. I mean, here we are trying, you know, let's say just trying to make a living. I mean, and then now Trudeau is going to make it even more expensive by not even, we've got the biggest oil fields out there that we can, and the cleanest oil, we're not using it. So, I mean, and everything comes from diesel. So you think everything else is going to be expensive. These trucks, I'm driving on the highway now, and all these trucks, you wait at $2 a liter, it's going to cause even more inflation. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You're right. Um, so I'm inf- inflation's going up. Guy, I'm pissed at this guy writing an article because he's from a city, and us in a small town are just trying to eke out a, you know, irk out a living, and, uh, and of course we're not going to, you know, if prices are that high, we're not going to drive any extra than we have to. So... It just, oh, it burns me up that uh, somebody writes something like that. And somebody in the cities are making the decisions, and they're not even thinking about anything out of, you know, out of Toronto or Ottawa or, you know, any other big city. Listen, I'm with they're you. Just- I, I think people, this is, you're feeling, people say, you know, politics is like, oh, that's going to happen in two years or in five. This is like today. You're at the pump today. I appreciate the call. Like, yeah. gas is expensive now. Again, in the U.K., it's $9.77 a gallon. Now, a gallon is about, what, folks, just under four liters. So you got to divide that by four, and you get what they're paying a liter. Right? $4.25 a gallon of gas in the U.S. is cheaper than what we're paying. Tell you that. Right? Cheaper than what we're paying. Evan, I'm not sure how people don't realize or just ignore the simple fact the entire world runs on gas. Cheaper gas is necessary to combat rising prices. This isn't just me saving a few bucks. It's cumulative. You save a few bucks on everything, it adds up. Um, Renewables, 30% of our energy right now. It's got to get better and fast. Look, we've got two simultaneous crises here. We've got three. Sorry. We've got three crises. We've got a political crisis in Ukraine, and I, I talk about that because that because Russia provides most of the gas and oil to Europe, especially natural gas, and that is you know Germany's in serious trouble. France less so because they have nuclear energy, but all around Europe they're in serious trouble because they rely on German gas or Russian gas. That has a knock-on consequences on global supply. So you got a political crisis. Now you got an economic crisis. Inflation running 5.5%, probably going to go up. As our last caller just said, they're going to pass it on to you. And then you got an environmental crisis. That's also real. 
We have three simultaneous crises. And leaders, you cannot just fix the future because people are too upset now. you got to do both. And that's why, though it's short-termism, sure, they're going to give 10-cent relief at the pump. Hands up if you don't like that. People like it. People need it. Bill, what's up? Yeah, Michael, uh, I was just going to say, I think it's ridiculous to lower the gas tax. All that's going to happen is they'll bring it down seven cents, eight cents, and the gas companies will just jack it back up six, seven cents. It will make no difference, except now we're going to be scrambling to try and find that deficit within our, our governmental budget. Why don't the government regulate the gas companies and the gas prices? I've been asking um, uh, hosts on this station for a very, very long time to try and explain to me why three years ago when gas was, or, or sorry, in 2009, when gas was at 100, or oil was $150 a barrel, gas was 25. We're now at 100, so $50 a barrel less, and we're at $1.70, $1.80 a liter. So, so by the can, can I get oil now, but more gas? Yeah. Um, Provinces and territories can regulate gas prices, not the federal government. The federal government does not have jurisdiction to do that. I just want you to know that. That's why you'll get in. in, I don't know if you're in Ontario or not, but the Ontario NDP leader, she wants to set a weekly price and a daily maximum. And to quote what she says, eliminate gouging. But the federal government can't do that. Okay, I just want you to know that. It's not like Justin Trudeau could do that. That's not his jurisdiction. Now, do you want wage and price control? That's what they did in the yeah. 70s. I don't know, man. Uh, I, I think there are better ways to do it than governments are doing wage, you know, controlling wage and price no. to combat inflation. But, but Bill... Stop the gouging. But, That's yeah, not- yeah, stop the gouging. Well, look, and, uh, Andrea Horvath for the NDP has literally pitched that. So uh, you've got... Someone who's, who, who's, who's singing from your song sheet there. Um, Matthew, go for it. Uh, I, think, I think, first of all, Andrew Horas is probably full of a lot of empty promises. Um, I don't mind the repeal, like the winding back of the gas tax uh, for a little while, but it probably is a political ploy. But I've never been a huge fan of the gas tax, only because there's little to no transparency what those funds are actually being used for. They could be just be being used to pay off other government debts. And I think the public would be able to be sold on it a lot more if we were able to be told, well, this much money went to planting trees, this much money went to investing in our electric grid system, uh, et cetera. Right. right. Um, um, okay, okay, I appreciate, I appreciate the call. Um, gas tax revenues that the federal government collects, uh, when, they, when Paul Martin rebated those, to provinces, a lot of it uh, does go into general revenue. You're right. Some of it goes to specific programming. Provinces do not like strings attached. This goes back to how our federation is set up. Do you want the federal government to say, we'll remit taxes, but it has to go here? If you like that, you're likely a liberal. If you don't like it, you're likely a conservative. And conservatives say, don't don't type, let the provinces spend how they want. Um, but it, it often does go to general revenue. I think just just quickly in the last, listen, we are going to experience high, high, high gas prices. Some people will change their behavior. Some people can't. They live in rural areas. They drive a truck for a living. And governments have to respond to this crisis and the next crisis. Uh, Coming up, we'll go to Ukraine. This is a remarkable interview. Next. 
As your world changes, we adapt to get your answers. Now more with Evan Solomon. Welcome back. So the war continues in Ukraine. Vladimir Putin's daughters have now been targeted by U.S. sanctions as of today. Why not? His family members, he's probably the richest man in Russia, one of the richest men in the world, and he just hides his money. We know that. Meantime, the Russia, the Russians just keep denying that they've committed war crimes. Like this never happened, they say. Massacres in Bucha. You see pictures of people executed. We talked about it yesterday. But the Russians say, no, it's a fraud, or they've made it up, or these are staged, or these are actors. Like, what have you done? You've invaded a country. You've destroyed cities. You've slaughtered people. There are countless accounts. I've listened to them of people who have said, I was, you know, the, here's the body of my husband. It's right. He's right there. Everyone was executed. There's journalists in Bucha now. But the Russians just pretend it didn't happen. Didn't happen. Like, who, who killed them? The Russians literally are alleging that somehow the Ukrainians got in there. What did they do? Did they destroy their whole country and kill everyone and blame the Russians? The Russians were there. They destroyed the cities. They moved in. They looted. They raped. That's what has happened. But, you know, in the wake of this kind of propaganda, we have to find people who were there. And Yuri Beryakov is the former advisor to the Ukrainian president, Petro Poroshenko. But like many of them, he's now been... uh, Fighting at the front lines, he's part of the twenty, the 206th Battalion of Territorial Defense. He's on the very front lines, and he's about to go east and fight in Donbass. But he was, his unit, his battalion was the second battalion to be in Bucha, hours after the Russians left. And I said to him, he's, he's, when I talked to him, he was exhausted. He said, I said, the Russians are denying there was a massacre in Bucha. You were just there. What did you see, sir? Well, we were actually second uh, battalion that arrived to Bucha on Saturday early morning around 9 a.m. Uh, Kiev time. And um, yes, I, I read that uh, Russians denying that uh, they did this. But uh, OK, so who did this? Because we were second battalion that arrived to Bucha. Before us, only National Police Battalion arrived to Bucha on Friday late evening, and they worked uh, in Bucha on Saturday early, early morning around 5 a.m., 6 a.m. And we saw a murdered man who, were, who was killed two, three weeks from this date. So who did this? The Russians, you know, and again, you know, they keep alleging without, by the way, without any proof in widely debunked um, videos, but that that somehow this is all staged. I just want the world to realize because you were there. How soon were you there after the Russians left? And again, I just I just want to make sure that our audience has this on the record of the extent of the damage and the extent of the atrocities that you saw, because I think these, your accounts are, are important uh, from a point of view of, of, of justice, law, and history. We arrived to Bucha on Saturday early morning. They left Bucha uh, from Thursday to Friday. Uh, so we arrived in 36 hours approximately uh, after they left, not, not more. 24 to 36 hmm. hours after they left. People are calling this, including your President Zelensky and, and our Prime Minister, war crimes. 
Um, yes. You have witnessed a lot. Um, what's your view? Um, I spoke a lot with uh, civilians that uh, are living in Bucha, and they told me a lot of stories about this, and they told me stories about uh, volunteers that uh, tried to organize some some sort of territorial defense on February 24, but on February 25, uh, Bucha was captured, and in two weeks uh, after that, all of them disappeared, and actually, this. So um, what we found, we found them uh, killed uh, in Bucha. These, these guys uh, that tried to organize territorial defense. And yes, they were not just killed uh, in fight. Uh, they were tortured before that and then killed. Sir, I mean, I can't imagine what it's like to, to see this day in, day out. Uh, how, tell me a bit about what you've seen around the country, because President Zelensky today said Bucha is just one place, that this is happening all over the place in the east. In yes, the to, today today I was with a uh, gubernatorial mission in uh, Chernigiv. Uh, Chernigiv was not captured, uh, but uh, Chernigiv was destroyed. Uh, today, our guys from our battalion were in uh, Borodyanka, which is not too, too far from Bucha, actually. And uh, Borodyanka not destroyed, uh, Borodyanka demolished. City just, just was just demolished. We cannot, we cannot uh, understand and we cannot imagine what currently uh, happening in Mariupol. But Mariupol also demolished already. Are you getting the sense when Russians are leaving places that they've demolished? Um, again, we're getting reports of, of looting, of executions, and of rape. Are, are you in mass graves? Have you seen anything like that? Yes, I saw all of that. I spoke with women uh, who were raped during weeks. I spoke with them personally. Tell, to tell, give Canadians, if you can, a sense of where the fight is heading. As I know there's some kind of negotiation, but Russia seems to be escalating in the east, the Donbass, Luhansk, Mariupol, all those eastern, southern regions. Yes, they're running away right now from... Uh, they already uh, escaped from uh, Kiev uh, region, from uh, Chernigiv region, Sumy region, and they're relocating uh, to Donetsk and Lugansk regions. I have a lot of friends in uh, Ukrainian army in uh, Lugansk region right now, and they told me today that, yes, uh, Russians coming and coming more and more, trying to capture, trying to uh, win uh, this battle in Lugansk and Donetsk region. In what way do you... How did your battalions and your military uh, defeat the Russians when they, they expected to capture Kiev in days. Obviously, it didn't happen. What has been most effective against the Russians, and will that still be effective in in more difficult areas like Donetsk and Luhansk? Well, first of all, this is our homeland, so we will fight uh, till last breeze, till last uh, piece of blood. Uh, to, to defend our homeland. So that's why they cannot, uh, they, they, they couldn't do anything with Kiev. Uh, and we will win, definitely we will win in Donetsk and Lugansk region because this is also our homeland, this is Ukraine. 
it is a long and 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 yes uh we did this with help of uh military help of from uh canada from united states from european union uh and uh we will we will win in any way we will win anyway <clears throat> that's yuri Baryakov, the former advisor to the the uh, former ukrainian president petro poroshenko he's on his way to donetsk to fight he's part of the 206 battalion of territorial defense the reason i want to keep having these conversations is and it's devastating what's happening in our and CTV's Paul Workman has been to Bucha. They're wiping these places out and they're slaughtering people. And we can't fall for the spin, the lies, the propaganda. It's just this is murder. The massacres. And Putin did it in Aleppo and he did it in Grozny and he's doing it again. And you know, this, this, oh, people say like, oh, there's both sides. What's the other side of an invading another, of another country? What's the other side of pouring 150,000 troops into a country? What's the other side of leveling a city like Mariupol? What's the other side of leveling a suburb of the capital of Kiev? That's like leveling Mississauga. That's like leveling Canada. That's like leveling NDG. Slaughtering people. There's no other side. This is a war crime. And that's why I want to get people who are there. All right. Uh, we are going to come home. We're going to have your thoughts next. Is Quebec right? Should every province extend the mask mandate? Finding answers to all your questions. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. Here we go. COVID again. I have never known so many people to have COVID. The CTV News Bureau is down 20% here in Ottawa. We're trying to cover the budget. 20, 25% of our staff COVID. You know, I got over COVID. My wife just got over COVID. My kids got over COVID. Recently, like for two years, I barely knew anybody that had COVID. I know 25 people that have it now. And of course, the mask mandates are gone and hospitalizations were down. Now they're up 30%. We're in the sixth wave, but, you know, everyone dropped the mask mandate, but Quebec said no. The Quebec government said, you know, we're not going to drop the mask mandate until the end of April because COVID cases and hospitalizations are up. The interim public health director, Dr. Luc Boileau in Quebec said, there's so many healthcare workers who are absent. He's worried about hospital capacity. Listen, we're worrying about the number of cases that are going up. The hospitalizations are too. It's spreading uh, very rapidly. So I ask you this. Is Quebec right? Should all provinces extend their mask mandates? I know it sucks. I've had COVID. I've had three shots. My worry about this is low, but I can tell you, close to a month after I first contracted COVID, I'm healthy, no underlying conditions, three shots. I even didn't have it that badly. I worked every day through COVID from my house. I still, you hear me every day on air. I'm still coughing. Dr. 
You know, I got a puffer. Ontario, I know there's an election. I know Doug Ford's got political reasons, but he says he's following the medical science. But doctors are saying, keep the kids in masks at schools anyway, at least till the end of the academic year. Everyone's got COVID. Half my my kid's class has COVID. My daughter just said at her university, everyone's got COVID. Like she, like it's it's crazy right now. What's your thought on this? One eight five five six three three ten ten or seven ten ten. Is Quebec right? Should the provinces follow Quebec and extend? Evan, Quebec is right to extend the mask mandate. They appear to be listening to their science table. Something Ontario forgot. COVID in Ontario is political. Science is thrown out the window. No, Evan, Quebec isn't right. Here we go. The numbers have increased the same in Ontario and Quebec. The masks don't do anything. Is that right? Ryan, what's up? Evan, yeah. Um, Thanks for covering this. I think it's a good faith, but I don't think really the masks really have any correlation with people coming out of the hospital. When you look at the data in Quebec and Ontario, I think we just need to ride this thing out and try to get back to normal as much as possible. But I do agree with you. I mean, my entire company got COVID. I got COVID. Everybody seems to have COVID right now. I just think... Are you, by the way, are you vaxxed? Like, yeah, it's interesting. Um, like, it's I'm spreading like wildfire. Yeah. I, so, so how is your... Everyone seems to get a different COVID. Like, how is yours? Um, it's interesting. So my wife isn't vaccinated. She had a better ride at it than me. I had a pretty tough time. My mom's vaccinated, and she... It was like nothing happened to her. Uh, a couple employees have the third shot that we have, and... Uh, it was mixed reactions with them, too. So I'm not really sure how to respond to that because yeah, everybody weird. seemed to have their own dirty with it. The, now, now, what I will say, I appreciate the call. According to doctors, hospitalizations are almost always the unvaccinated. That's what I'm hearing. And, and people can correct me. And, and if there's a doctor listening, call me um, if you want. But um, or text me at 71010. Uh, or call me at one eight five five six three three ten ten or seven ten ten. Most of the hospitalizations, which are going up dramatically, by the way, are the non-vaccinated. But I've heard people who are t- triple vaccinated that had it really bad, and I've heard people who are triple vaccinated or double vax that had it almost nothing at all. And and I'm sure that's the case. I don't. I'll be candid. I don't know very many people who are not vaccinated. I have no anecdotes about my quote unvaccinated friend. Maybe people won't tell me if they're unvaccinated. My position is take the vax. I'm very pro-vaccination. Mike in Etobicoke. Hey, Evan. Triple vaxxed. On the third dose, I got sick as hell. I don't know if I got COVID or whatever. This, I voted for a conservative. I am conservative. I do not like the liberals. Unfortunately, every liberal, NDP, conservative, pander, to whoever's going to vote them in. Leave the masks on, big deal. When you're walking in and there's not a big crowd, take them off. In the school, keep them. Why? It's, it's a vote-getter. At least Quebec, and I can't believe I'm saying this, has the balls to say, no, leave the masks on. We want mm. our kids to be safe. But, again, it's pandering. Liberals do it. Conservatives do it. It's for the vote. It's not for the people. We're in big debt right now because it's for the vote. It's not for the people. Mm. I appreciate the call. 
Yeah, good call. <clears throat> Listen, pandering is the old political game. I get it. A lot of people are saying, look, and I think this is an interesting thing. Um, how come we have to keep getting boosters? And I asked an epidemiologist last night on PowerPlay named Christopher Labos, okay? He's an epidemiologist. I asked him, He said, and he told me that, yeah, we're probably going to need regular boosters. And I said, wait a second. Every year or every couple, every six, nine months, we're going to get a booster. A lot of people say, this is why I don't want another vaccine. So here, I just want to play this because I said, like, why? You know, I don't need a, every year a vaccine against measles or polio. What's the drill here? I, I, and I think this is important because... You know, you might have to take a four shot or a third shot. Here's what he said. The reality is, is that many vaccines require boosters. We just don't do them. You're supposed to get a tetanus shot every 10 years. It's just that we don't. But that's every 10 years, not every 10 months. So I said, like, what's the deal with these vaccines? The problem with COVID is the vaccines, their immunity wanes with time, but also the virus mm. keeps changing. Every subsequent new variant that comes out is slightly different, and we slight and we see some decreased vaccine efficacy because of it. Uh, what I've noticed, so there, there's some perspective for you. What I've noticed, like we don't have to. I live in Ottawa now, and um, <clears throat> what I notice is when I go grocery shopping, everyone's still wearing a mask, and I notice a lot of people are just wearing a mask because this is like. Let's be candid. Do we really need to be told now? Like, I've had COVID. I'm triple vaxxed. I probably won't get COVID because I just got it. So my anxiety level is down. But I got to tell you, I don't care what politicians say at this point. Like, common sense is whatever it is is bloody infectious. It can take you down for four or five days. It's been almost a month for me where my lungs are, doc says I'm going to get better, but it sucks. So, like, what are you going to do? Is this a political statement? My lungs don't care about politics. Do yours? I just think at some point we have to start making decisions for ourselves. And a lot of people are. A lot of people are just like, look, Evan, you know, Quebec's got it right. But even if Ontario doesn't, and I disagree with the government here, I'm just going to wear a mask because there's an end. Clearly, we're in the sixth wave. I mean, just look around you. More people have COVID now than, than I've ever seen at any other time. Uh, you could text me, um, 71010. Maybe Quebec's got it right, maybe not. And you could text me if you're voluntarily wearing a mask or not. I'm just intrigued how people are taking their lives in their own hands. Okay, uh, or their, their choices in their own hands. Uh, the War Room is next. Wow, I love it. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Well, everyone's got a case of beer because Tim Powers has been a generous man. <laughs> the war room is here, and the war room is well lubricated. It Should we do the stinger first? Everyone take a drink, and then we'll get the war room. Let me be perfectly clear. Putting out misinformation. And we hear that. Misleading politics. What's really important here. Spreading it online. Unequivocally. The War Room. Now, what was I referring to? Well, this is the most well-lubricated panel ever because Tim <laughs> Powers, chairman of Summa Strategy, Tom Mulcair, CTV political analyst and former NDP leader, and Zane Velji, political campaign strategist, partner at Northweather, who has worked with the likes of Rachel Notley and Nanenshi, 
basically have a drinking club going on. Uh, uh, Tim can start. Before we get to the politics, let's. This is what we all need. Tim, Tim, what's the deal here uh, with the booze club and you guys all pounding beer all the time? Now, listen, you have benefited in the past. I am fortunate enough to be a partner in a small, humble craft brewery and water distribution business here in Ottawa. And I'd like to share our products so people can acquire a taste for them. Uh, Evan, and I'm just a Newfoundlander. I'm happy to have a beer or a water in Zane's case, in your case, kind of a mix of a water, wine, and God knows what else uh, with my friends. Okay, let's get, <laughs> let's get some reviews. We'll start in Quebec, and then we'll go out west. Uh, beer review, Mulcair, what's the product? Would you get? How much did you so drink? Are you blasted? There's, there's a lager that's made with um, vintage corn. Wow. And it's it's got a very funny name about like something in the field. I'm sure Tim will give me the name Trouble. right away. Trouble in the field, which Trouble. of course is a perfect name for something that Tim Powers is selling. And yeah. it's absolutely <laughs> smashing. If there is a way for me to go somewhere in the Montreal area and find this, otherwise I have to drive right. to Ottawa. But you know, I'd be willing to do that on the way to the cottage just to be able to put out a case of two four of that stuff. For my friends on the dock this summer. Wow. And by the way, folks, uh, and Zane, this is a challenge. Tom just said he could kill a 2-4. Go ahead, Zane. Go ahead. <laughs> as, a non <laughs> as a non-drinker in the group, I am both behind on the verbiage and the lexicon that you all use to describe your alcoholic <laughs> beverages. But I will say that what Tim sent over to me, which was 24 cans of some, some amazing seltzer, which, by the way, I think my wife is now addicted to this melon seltzer stuff. So I don't know what you've done there, Powers, uh, is incredible. Mm. It's really, really good. On our text group, I've been uh, posting pictures of myself with these cans like I'm some poor man's Instagram influencer. Uh, but this stuff is uh, is legit, my friend. Yeah, thank you good. so much. Uh, yeah. By the way, I he Tim long ago realized that sending me beer is basically like sending beer to I, to, to to friends because I don't drink it very much. So he also sends me the seltzer. Uh, but I will say this: um, it's fantastic. So Tim, thank you very much. That's all the time we've got for Thanks, your advertisement today. <laughs> that's good. That's that's our paid promotional Holy segment. Crap. I mean, this is what happens. And people say, "Oh, it's all corrupt in politics." Well, you know what, folks? If you're listening and your buddy sends you a case of seltzer or beer, you, you got to say thanks. We're we're Canadians here. You and know, you all great. did all very polite. All yeah. very polite. You're all very well. And you know, it's Canada, Tim. So in the spirit of uh, a budget, what else do you have for us? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> what are you looking for uh, in the in the budget? Because I want to talk budget and I want to talk uh, the CPC leadership race and. And, and, and the polyevra uh, momentum, but it is on the eve of the budget. I'll start with the with the uh, the Santa of beverages, Tim Powers. What are you looking for? Uh, expectations and concerns. Well, let me just say one thing. Hot rumors circulating around Ottawa now is something you covered yesterday, and this sets up the budget in a different way, that the Beta Nord project decision could be announced this afternoon. And if that is, in fact, announced, say, after 4 o'clock when mm. markets close, that's probably an affirmative decision, as Tom uh, suggested it might be last week. Yeah. That's fascinating yeah. mm. if that's happening. Because and just to remind politics. people, I had a Premier Fury, the Premier of Newfoundland Labrador, on the program yesterday, our audience heard, where he made the pitch for it. Go ahead. 
Well, and what, fascinating on a few fronts in setting up the budget. So, of course, it will be met uh, by scorn by some of uh, Stephen Guibault's uh, longtime uh, co-workers and allies and, and others in the country. But the government, I think, will point to it and say, look, we are committed to uh, addressing uh, economic needs. We're, we're going to approve a significant project. It's connected to the Ukraine. So it's almost a bit of a pro-business announcement in a budget where business doesn't expect to be much positive announcement, including surtaxes. So the, the other things I'll be looking for in that budget is after this setup piece, what are those uh, bigger legacy pieces like pharmacare, like dental care, uh, ongoing funding for childcare, housing that the prime minister is going to spend, and how is he going to pay for them? What are these tax measures we're hearing about uh, uh, geared at the banks and insurance companies going to look like, and what other tax measures may be in there if today is the pro business day with Beta Nord. Wow, that that would be big. Uh, Tom, what are you looking for? Well, I'm going to stick with Tim's point for a while because I've got a slightly different angle on it, of course, as a former environment minister. And right now I'm the chairman of the board of Earth Day Canada. So I'll take a little bit of a different approach with regard to, you know, environment versus economy. Mm -hmm. It's going to be impossible for Mr. Trudeau to be taken seriously, much less even more difficult for uh, Stephen Gilbo on climate change if he approves this project. It's hundreds of millions of barrels of new oil. I can give you their Rolodex of explanations. It's less intense Mm -hmm. per barrel than tar sands oil, but it's in addition to the oil sands oil, not in the place of. So that argument falls flat. On Friday, Stephen Gilbo, who I've known for decades, you know, he's a great guy, uh, but he he showed up and he got booed and he got, uh, you know, screamed at by a bunch of protesters for his position on Bay Nord because everybody is, as Tim says, expecting them to approve it. And I had teased him when he became minister. I said, you know, what are you going to do the day you get screamed at by environmentalists? And he just chuckled and he goes, it's inevitable. But you know what's not inevitable is to live in a world that's increasingly difficult for our children and grandchildren because we're, we don't care about global warming. And Mr. Trudeau's always talked a good game about this. But if he does approve it, then we'll see again that it's always been phony on their part. Well, it's interesting. I said earlier, Zane, there's three crises. There's a political crisis and a war in Ukraine that has led to an economic crisis and major supply shocks for people, pocketbook issues, uh, energy shortages, and there's a climate crisis. Um, Is this a way to, you know, as the premier of Newfoundland and Labrador says, perfectly pitch a transitional fossil fuel? Yeah, it's, it's a pitch that many Western premiers have been using if they were trying to right-size their rhetoric with this current government. And it's one that also has domestic political value, of course, to the people of Newfoundland, Labrador, but also tomorrow is their budget provincially. And mm-hmm. they're expecting with the premier's reset plan there that this announcement, if it comes today, as we've been talking about, could provide them a bit of cloud cover to what might be, you know, pending where their resource revenues are, a bit of a bad news budget in certain cases for unions and others. So it'll be interesting to see the domestic political benefits. But the case, I think, you know, the Trudeau government has made for a long time is this balancing act. And Tom makes a compelling point as they now march to the left and attach their uh, their hips to the NDP. Um, how much discontent between that and the F-35 fighter jets and other defense spending will uh, the, the further left liberals uh, now r- uh, rise up? I guess what I'm looking for to answer that question, Evan, uh, you know, Tim's mentioned the revenue side. I'll be focusing on the revenue side as well. And then the big one for me is really about the By the, the way, packaging. the revenue, just, just, just drill down on that real quick. Yeah, the revenue, yeah, so, debt to GDP is going to go, the, yeah. the ratio of debt to GDP will go down because the revenue is going to massive because of the increase in commodity prices. 
Correct. And and when I mean revenue, I will double down in terms of what other uh, you know measures are they thinking about? What other instruments, taxations, we heard about the surtax, et cetera. What other things are they thinking of, small or big or small that could become big, uh, are they thinking of on the revenue side? The final thing I'll look at is how they're packaging this. That's what I find to be the most intriguing. When the Ukraine war started, we heard rumors that this was going to be a back to basics budget. When the agreement with the NDP is in place, we're now thinking they're going to spend you know, spend, spend, spend. How are they going to reconcile both of those uh, narratives that are out there? Uh, I suspect, and I could be eating crow next Wednesday when we chat again, that they might stick with the back to basics framework and try to stuff in some big government spending Mm. in that casing. Uh, Now, the question is, do they fail on that? And there's a risk there because the last thing Trudeau wants is another soundbite that sounds something like childcare as being the solution to inflation, which we recall Mm. from several months ago is what what he said. So how tone deaf will it come across? if they try that and yeah. what will they do on the affordability side i think the packaging is but, what i look at evan okay uh, you'll be back thursday for a special edition of the war room because we got to do the budget so just uh, mark that in your calendars let me take a break christian freeland the finance minister is buying new budget shoes this is a tradition that goes back what to 70 years the finance minister always buys new shoes so she's doing that live and we'll find out what to expect from her budget and the concerns next stay with us As this story changes, we react. This is the Evan Solomon Show. So uh, welcome back. We are inside the war room, of course, with Zane Velge, political campaign strategist and partner at Northweather, Tom Mulcair, CTV political analyst and former NDP leader, and Tim Powers, chairman of Summa Strategies. Tim broke the news that we should likely expect news on uh, the Bay de Nord, the uh, deepwater oil platform, a green light from the government as early as today, I've got uh, one source also telling me that, yeah, this probably may happen. And, uh, <laughs> you know, if you do have a spot in the show, you may want to keep it open on power play. Uh, okay, so I'm getting a lot of uh, sources saying, yeah, this looks like it's going to happen after markets close. So that's uh, thanks for that, Tim. And I've just got a source confirming that. Not that I, I always just need to confirm everything you say, Tim, but it, it is wise. Um, You you are a professional journalist. You you should do that. I won't tweet it until I get my second confirmation. I've already got one. uh, Don't ask me this. I can't say anything. So um, so I've already got I've already got one. uh, Shut your trap. That's probably the best confirmation you're going to get. Yeah. 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 I know. I know. But, you know, this is it's true. Confirmation by by non-confirmation is the best form of confirmation. And folks, if you don't understand that, welcome to politics. Yeah. This Uh, sausage making exercise we get to be part of is excellent. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, well, it goes down with Tim's beer. Uh, Zane, you tweeted out something interesting. Let's talk about the uh, conservative yeah. leadership race. Uh, uh, and I had been uh, talking a lot about Pierre Polyev's momentum, and everybody has. The guy's, like, the guy's got crowds of like 1,000 people in Lindsay, Ontario. Now, I know that's close to where one of his key strategists, Jenny Byrne, was born. But uh, he's pulling in crowds all across the country, in Ottawa, everywhere. Then you see, like, Jean Charest, and it's like looking at a guy sort of wandering the airport looking for friends. Zane, what's yeah. going on here? Looking yeah, for my, his luggage. 
Oh, my goodness. Yeah, well, I, I tweeted out that, listen, as progressives, we have to take note about the juice that this campaign has and not just, you know, take a crap on it is pretty much what I said. Mm-hmm. I got hit hard for that, and primarily from some, some of my smug progressive friends. But I think there's more going on here than just the rhetoric and the ideology. There's a mechanical politics that the Polyev campaign is doing in terms of owning the media cycle, having their issues being talked about on a day to day basis. The simplicity in the language and the rhetoric, even yeah. if I don't agree with it, there's something to be learned from that. There's something to be learned about. Yes, it might be assertive and naked, their data collection exercise. Uh, there's a lot to be seen and heard uh, and, and, and learned from in this Polyev campaign. And then you look at Sheree and Brown, as you mentioned, Evan, and, and you know, if, if I'm them right now, some might say you, ha- you would have had to hit the panic button two weeks ago. I'm not necessarily panicking. And yeah. here's why. I think there's still opportunity for them from the perspective of either regional dominance or cultural community dominance. But I think if they think about competing in the lane that Polly is in right now, dominating the media, dominating the rallies, I think they lose. But if they think about how to kind of, you know, take off different chunks, i.e. Quebec, mm-hmm. Southern Ontario, different communities, I think it's possible for them. But there is no mistake about it that the Polly campaign is producing something that I think all political operatives should be should be watching. Tom, I look you got to win the leadership first and you got to sign up membership. And while it's a long leadership race, it's a short track to find new members. Polly ever's yes, got a data exactly. mining collection thing that I mean, I just, I don't know. You tell me you, you predicted Sheree's going to be a player. I don't see any, I, I feel like this guy's, uh, you know, he he's trotted a Ford LTD from 1986. And it's like, this is not, <laughs> you cannot run with the Teslas. I think he got elected in 84, but I digress. No, I, I, I look at my old writing of Shamadi in Laval when Charest did a full court press to fill a room there, got over 500 people. But I was looking at that saying, okay, he did everything he could to go into the most liberal riding in outside of uh, the island of Montreal. And he's got 500 people. Assuming that every single one of them buys a membership, he'd have to do two of those halls per day to get the thousand members a day he needs to start catching up to Poiliev. And my analysis from the beginning has been, Poiliev is going to win with the existing membership of the Conservatives, but who's selling memberships? Patrick Brown has a history of being absolutely brilliant at selling memberships. When he took over the PCs in Ontario, he had sold 80,000 memberships. Nobody could catch him in in any way, shape, or form. And it was only uh, once an incorrect news story got circulated that he was pretty well done and and Ford took over and the rest is history. So I think that my early perception that Charest is a good campaigner He's a good campaigner in a structure where you've got national news teams following around your every step. But when Mm. you're supposed to be barn burning from small town to small town and exciting crowds and bringing people out, it seems that the right wing here in Canada is starting to set the house on fire. I think that it's true that Poitiev is doing... Last night in Quebec City, he's going into Quebec City now. This is a fellow named Eric Duhem. Remember the name. This is the head of the Quebec Conservative Party, which has never done anything in the history of the province. He had over 500 people in a hall. He had the place stomping. He's going to be winning a bunch of seats in greater Quebec City of the 125 in the Quebec National Assembly. He's got about 20 seats. And this guy's going to probably win lots of them, if not most of them. So there is something happening on the right. Mm. He's relatively young. He's about Poitiers' age. He's a radio host. He's openly gay. I mean, he's a very different type of character. He's out of that Quebec City radio culture, which is very unique in Canadian political landscape. But I'm telling you, 
keep an eye on these guys. And I, mm. I, I think I might have to eat my words with regard to Charev, because I bet one of my French radio colleagues, Jean-Francois Lisée, I bet him a bottle of Bordeaux that Charev would uh, be able to beat uh, Poilievre. And I think it might cost me a good bottle of wine. Yeah, well, <clears throat> the bad thing is uh, uh, Powers doesn't make Bordeaux yet. That's a couple years in the making. <laughs> uh, no, but we Tim... We've been on Pierre Pinot War week before, but anyway, go ahead. But, but the truth is, I watched that uh, during the COVID sitch, I start. I don't know anything about Formula One, but I got into it. I watched Drive to Survive, and I'm like obsessed with the drive, the Formula One doc series. It's fantastic. But you know, however good your driver is, if you don't have the right car, you can't win. And this is exactly. like Jean Charest's problem. I, I don't know. People mm-hmm. say oh, he's a great driver. I, I'm just looking from the outside, Tim. You're a political strategist. The campaign car he's driving is not winning the race. No, I don't. I think they grossly underestimated the power of digital. And uh, as uh, Tom was alluding last time, Mr. Charest ran in a conservative leadership race. It was delegated conventions uh, in 1993, where you could line up very specific slates. And if you were a good enough persuader, as he almost was in the end, uh, you could win. Um, I think they recognize that this is a problem from conversations I've had with some people on that team. But whether they can scale up quickly enough is the fascinating thing, because as both Zane and Tom said or alluded to, both Pierre and Patrick already had massive databases. Pierre through his YouTube channel and his other social media platforms uh, and Patrick from his previous run at uh, the Ontario PC leadership race. And they know how to activate them. They're very good at direct-to-consumer market. Which is really different than what Mr. Charest yep. went through in his previous leadership races. I know, uh, again, he's in Newfoundland tonight. I know they're happy they have 100 people there. Uh, big crowd, small crowd, I don't know. They're spinning it as a good thing because of the COVID challenges there. But 100 people in St. John's, unless they all actually buy uh, membership in one riding, and he collects those 100 points as a consequence right. for that there riding, yeah. uh, exactly. it's a hell of a lot of work. I mean, at the end of the day, the charade campaign has to do what their slogan is. They have to if they're saying that they're built to win, that they that they're designed to win in the political environment where Trudeau has been dominating uh, the middle and now further to the left, they have to start getting those disaffected liberals. I mean, the, yeah. the goal for Sheree now, looking at the database and trying to persuade, that's not enough. Even if you do that exactly. in Quebec and do regional dominance and maybe have some luck out, out in the East Coast, your goal right now is largely about increasing right. that 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 membership, and it has to be from disaffected can, liberals. Can I just add, yeah. like, a 10 seconds, Tom? Is uh, something changed in politics? In the old days, like the Sheree days, you ran against the government. Like, you had to run against Trudeau. Here's my thing against Trudeau. New politics, specifically conservative politics, is you run also against your opponent's heart. Pierre Polyarv has done both. Yeah. I haven't seen Sheree or Brown, maybe more Brown, run against Pierre, but they sh- they may have to. No, but they don't have the pulpit that Pierre has. And that's what we're learning here. Because of his dominance of social media and the fact that he's plugged in in Ottawa, Charest can walk around wherever he wants near the, the parliamentary precinct. They won't even let him in. I, that's that's the big difference. The other guy pops out. He's there. He's got the cameras. He can be anywhere he wants in the Ottawa region. He can fill up a hall, and he has access right. to media. Uh, They're not going to deny him a microphone simply because he's running for the leadership of his party. And by the way, their weird ranked ballot, and you're, you're right about yeah. a delegated convention versus mm-hmm. this, right. that ranked ballot came within a whisker of electing Maxime Bernier yeah. as the head of the Conservative okay. Party. Don't forget, that's I, a weird I'm, I'm sorry, guys. Tom, Zane, and, and Tim, I'm running out of runway. Why? Because we got to swap one great Newfoundlander, Tim, for another one, <laughs> Alan Doyle. 
Thanks, guys. So come on, off we go. We'll put on a show. We've done this before. We can win. Raise our voices together. It's now or it's never. Talking to the newsmakers every day. The conversation continues with Evan Solomon. Who is that singing? It's a musical? Is that is that Alan Doyle? Is that the <laughs> beloved singer from Great Big C, the author? Is he doing something else? The great Oh my god, you're a Renaissance man. Doyle! Hello, thanks for having me on. Thank god. you very much. You know, a lot of people and I don't care that people just say you have great hair or a great voice. <laughs> you got a bloody serious work ethic, Doyle. Oh, well, I'm lucky to get involved in a few fun things every now and again, and certainly the Telltale Harbor Project for the Charlottetown Festival is one of my favorite things I ever got to do, I must say. And, and, and I think the reason why I loved it so much, you know, and continue to love the development of it all is because I don't know how to do any of it, you know? And so it's, that, it's just got that, that, you know, it just gets both terrifying and exciting in the, in the way that good art should be. <laughs> okay, let, let's talk about this because I, I because I barely have introduced it. I was just so I loved it. That is, I got a song for you, it's yeah. Alan Doyle, who you know from Great Big C. You know from the, his many best-selling books. This is a musical, yeah, and it's the Telltale Harbor World Premiere at the 2022 Charlottetown Festival. There is great stuff going on at the Confederation Center of Arts in PEI, folks. If you get there, how did you get involved in this? What is this? Uh, Telltale Harbor is an adaptation, a musical comedy adaptation of a film that most people in Canada would know as The Grand Seduction that started Brendan Gleeson and Mark Critch and, and, and uh, Gordon Pinson and the like about a small Atlantic town that loses its fish plant and is in the line in the consideration to get a, a replacement plant to save the town. But there's one huge hurdle they need to overcome in order to qualify for that replacement plant. And that is that they need a full-time doctor. So a doctor is coming to town and uh, the folks in Telltale Harbor, in our case, have uh, a very short window of time to convince the visiting doctor that Telltale Harbor is where he should full-time yeah. reside for the rest of his life. Can I tell you, I've, I watched that film. It's on the Netflix, folks. It is on the Netflix. It is on the Netflix. It is a fine picture. Now, Isn't and it? I say yeah. that as we're both very good friends with Mark Critch, but that doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> I hate most of Critch's stuff. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I love Critch's stuff. But 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 I got to tell you, it's a great film. So they decided yeah. to adapt it as a musical. So who are you playing? So I play the character that Brendan Gleeson plays in, in the film. I play the lead in our, in our show. He's called Frank and he's the lead, you know, conjurer of the, of, of the Telltale Harbor. And he's the, the blind optimist that believes without, beyond a shadow of a doubt that of course the visiting doctor will fall in love with Telltale Harbor. And if we have to tell a few uh, little white lies to ensure that he knows, mm-hmm. well, we'll do that. Right. And so, uh, as the as the tagline goes, only only a tall tale will save this tiny town. And and Frank, the guy I play, uh, is the guy responsible for uh, conducting the orchestra of uh, deception that, in order to keep the doctor in town. It's such a charming film. I mean, it's fascinating. It's beautiful. It's bewitching. Yeah. I love this. Uh, here's the other thing. They so then they phone you up. Like like you're writing books. You're writing. You're, you're getting ready for Great Big C. It's the old COVID's going on, and they're like, yeah. hey, uh, Alan, could you mind writing the, uh, I don't know, the music and the lyrics to a musical version? <laughs> like, yeah. have you ever done that before? What was the process no. like? 
No, no. They, uh, so Adam Brazier, and, uh, who's the creative director uh, for Charlton Festival, artistic director, along with uh, a gent named Bob Foster, uh, who um, many people in the Canadian theater will know yeah. as uh, director of, uh, say, music director for Come From Away in Toronto, and then yeah. previous, you know, and for Anna Green Gables here in Charlton many years, and many other musicals around, you know, the Mervish land in Toronto. I've and, seen both of those. He's amazing. Yeah, he's amazing. And so they were already started down the road of, you know, creating Telltale, what will become Telltale Harbor. And they wanted a songwriter, so they called me, and I, I just sort of said, guys, I don't, I have no idea if I know how to do this, so I'll just, I'll write a couple of songs, and if you dig them, we'll, we'll move, go to the next step. And if you don't, fine, uh, it's totally understandable, we'll go out to someone who, but they, I wrote a couple of tunes, and they loved them, and then I became involved in the, in the development team for the whole thing, which went on to include, uh, you know, Newfoundland famous author Ed Rich uh, became our main book writer for the show, and then my dear friend Gillian Kylie, who anyone in Canadian theater will know as being the, you know, the director of English theater at the NEC in Ottawa for the last decade, you know. And so it's kind of a dream team of people creating right. this, you know, great night out for people, ultimately, that's filled with, you know, Atlantic Canadian music and heart and a search for home and a touching, uh, a charming little town trying to do anything they can to not have to you know, up stakes and move down the and move to the big cities. I got to tell you, the, the, the 2013 Ken Scott film Grand Seduction is so good. This I can't wait to see. It's it's only in Charlottetown. What happens if this is a hit, Doyle? What happens if they're like, oh, Alan, you got to, uh, you're like, I can, I've got great big, I got a book tour, I got a million things. But they're like, you got to come to, Mervish has bought this thing, you got to come to Toronto, you got to go, what, like, what if this thing, which it could, because it's you, what if Telltale Harbor becomes what you just said happened to another great musical come from away what happens well i think that'd be a really good problem to have yeah it would be (laughs) it would be a good one um yeah you know i mean people are really excited about it and uh i am really excited about it and uh we are booked uh for 60 or 70 shows throughout the uh Charlottetown Festival this summer, you know, in rep with Anne of Green Gables, and I, I would love for people to come check it out, as a bunch of the shows are sold out already, and uh, it, let's see what comes after that, you know, it's like... Uh, so knows? you're in PEI, you're in Charlottetown the whole summer then? Yeah, I, I'm here right now, just finishing the first group of rehearsals, and then I go on the road with my band uh, in, next week in the, the western part of the U.S., right. and I go home for a couple of days early May, and then I come back here on um, really the 9th of May, and we start final rehearsals, and our first preview is June 14, and Telltale Harbor official uh, opening. Unbelievable. It's June 23rd, I believe, right here in Charlton. I love it. Okay, so let me ask you, so let, let, let's cut the crap now. When I go to a, 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 a show... Right. And it's a great big C show. There's a lot of people that are lubricated before the show. (laughs) Right. And there is a sense that you are having a pretty darn good time as well. Uh, Is there like, is the backstage different for a great big C show than, say, for a Telltale Harbor show? Oh, well, you know, the, you know, the. (laughs) Let me tell you, in the earliest days of touring, you know, when I was in my 20s and we were right. playing all the, our apprenticeship was in the pubs of Atlantic Canada. You know, you could try to be as professional as you wanted. But before the fourth set was over at the old Dublin pub or at the lower deck in Halifax, you you were going off the rails. There was, there was no way to hold that train. But, you know, really, since, you know, you know, Greg BC and, and my own, you know, tours became sort of concert tours. 
you know, it's been it's been uh, quite a bit tamer backstage than people <laughs> might. No, but it, but it actually is true, right? I mean, partly, yeah. uh, Alan, it's physical, right? And and, and I was oh just God. talking to your pal uh, Ron Sexsmith, who was here. Yeah. He's just finished a tour, and I had a little a drink with him after. And he's like, you know, you gotta, you know, when you're young, you do, you know, you can do whatever you want. As yeah. you, you know, get into your career twenty years on. It's a physical process out there to give give that kind of energy. Do you find it's physical to do that on Telltale Harbor? Oh, well, I mean, well, first of all, like just singing in concerts now. I mean, you know, I'm in my early 50s, right? But it's a, it's a radically different physical demand than when I was in my 20s, right? Because it's just harder. And now, you know, when I'm doing my solo shows, I sing 26 or 27 songs a night, six nights a week. So it kind of dictates how much fun you can have after the gig. And, uh, and then, but Telltale Harbor, I was joking with a few of my musical, my band friends, you know, the other day. And I said, they're asking me how the rehearsals are going. And I said, do you know that this crowd in musical theater, they walks around and does other stuff while they're singing a song. <laughs> like, holy. <laughs> it's so yeah. true, right? Yeah, I got to get in shape, man. That's it. That's all there is to it. This yeah, is this is. Rack it all together. Uh, that's right. You don't just sit there and, and shake it. You got to walk. Uh-huh. And... All right. Here's what we'll do. Let, let me take a break. I'm, I'm talking to Alan Doyle. Um, like everybody, Alan Doyle is like the perfect guest. Uh, he's done everything. Uh, he's got a story about everything. Uh, now he's got to act. He's got to sing. He's written the lyrics. He's uh, he's shacking up in Charlottetown uh, for the summer, which, by the way, makes it the number one tourist destination for this great new musical. But there's lots more to talk about. Uh, Alan Doyle uh, from Great Big Sea, but now maybe from the future success of uh, Telltale uh, Harbor, which is just uh, I'm, I'd love to see that. I gotta I gotta now think about going to Charlottetown. Damn you for. Uh, Changing my summer plans. Uh, Okay, we'll take a break. Alan Doyle on the other side of a break. When important decisions are made, we report. Here's Evan Solomon. Well, you probably have seen him acting. I mean, he's done this stuff before. I mean, he's been in Greece. Like, he actually was in a perform in musicals before. He's in another one. He's acted in films before. He was in, uh, I mean, he's acted with Russell Crowe. Like, he doesn't, doesn't start with nothing. Uh, he's just written a couple, I don't know. I don't know how many songs you've written. Well, how many songs, Alan Doyle, from Great Big Sea, have you written? We got any idea? I don't really know. I, I, I don't know. You, just, you don't give it. You don't. Give, you're like I don't know. A, a lot of them. I don't know. I'll, <laughs> yeah, I, I, you're right. I did do a, a sort of a, a funny musical theater thing one time before, where yeah. there was a, my friend Jill had a, had a theater company in St. John's, and they used to do this thing called a 24 hour musical, mm-hmm. where they would pick a, a musical out of a hat eight o'clock on Friday night. And on 8 o'clock on Saturday night, we staged the musical with full choreography and the whole works. <laughs> I love so, it. It was great fun and all that stuff. But and it, you it, did it, Grease. Now, now let me ask you, because like, we all like Grease. Uh, is there a song from Grease that runs through your head? Is there one Grease song where you're like, you know what? I was happy to sing this, Poppy. Well, yeah, a lot of them. But, but I'll tell you one thing. I, I'm a terrible dancer. But when we were doing that little 24-hour show, when... When the greased lightning came, I just don't know why I knew how to do those arm movements, you know? Go yeah. greased lightning, rolling up the quarter mile. Greased, greased lightning, lightning, go. Like you just, the, the arm pumps just came out of me. I don't know. Oh. But 
this is really my first time in all honesty being in musical theater like that that, that was kind of a, a brief little like one hour fund or one day fundraiser thing so this is all new for me but it's really exciting and we just announced the cast today and all that stuff and so like trust me when i tell you i'm surrounded by a dream team of, mm. in the development, but also in the cast. It's just like, it's a bit of a who's who of Canadian theater. And especially uh, a lot of the people here who have, you know, owned the stage at the Charlottetown Festival for decades. So, so it's, now, it's now really like fun. when you're singing, you're, this is yeah. your, so your natural state is a singer songwriter. I understand that, yeah. but you've branched out in many things, right? Like you've been a writer, uh, yeah. you've been an actor before. Like you think about Ridley Scott's Robin Hood, not, that's not nothing. Uh, so you know, like uh, Crow and and Colin Farrell, some great actors, right? Do yeah. you reach out to an actor to say, look, I like I I don't need tips on music. I've done that my whole life. That's the I'm I'm the fish in that water. I'm a fish out of water here. Did Did you ever take tips from acting? And and before you did this particular thing, are you calling up sort of great theater people and saying, what's your one piece of advice? Or or does Alan Doyle just just set sail? No, I call upon my friends literally hourly when I'm, when I'm in over my head and I'm always over my head. And I remember, like for, you mentioned the Robin Hood film. I mean, you know, I was constantly, uh, that was my first time in a, in a movie, you know. And so Russell and Scott Grimes and Kevin Durand and all that gang helped me daily, you know, because I literally didn't know how to do it yet. You so know? what would they say? Like, what is something that you put in your in your kind of Swiss Army knife of advice that you can pull out? Like, what did Crow tell you? They're like, that is a, uh, that's a treasure. I'll, I'll keep that one. Well, I, <laughs> well I, I wrote a story about it in my latest book about how the, my first day on the set and how Russell told me, uh, you know, we had this massive scene with like 200 people in it and, and we had to shoot arrows and, and run down the hill and all this stuff. And Russell said, you know, if you, we had to fire three hours each, if I remember correctly. If, you, you know, if one misfires or whatever, don't worry about it. Just keep going there shooting lots of stuff, not just you coming down the hill, air type things. So, of course, I ran down the hill with 180 other people and picked up my arrow and dropped it. And I stopped and went, hey, I dropped it. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone was like, oh, God, you can't do that. Up the <laughs> hill we go. That is. <laughs> and then, you know, my friend Kevin Durant, uh, I remember him telling me one time early in the show, after he, someone said cut, he called me over and said, hey, you're doing good, but you're doing good, which I knew meant I wasn't doing good. And, and he says to me, he says, you know, when you say let's go uh, over by the horses, over by the trees and get the horses, you don't need to, you know, to make a shape of a tree with your hands or like do a little hands on reins motion when you say horses. You know, people at home, I'm pretty sure know what horses are. And so I'll, everything, every kind of rookie mistake and, and every kind of, uh, you know, just if you have good intentions and you have your ears and eyes open, and you're lucky to be surrounded by people who are willing to help you all the time. And it's great. You know, like, I mean, my friend, Alan Hocko, uh, who's in Columbia right now doing a film, you know, I've had him, I've went, gone through the script with him a couple of times and he's going to help me as it gets yeah. closer. And, and I just, he, he's got a film coming where he sings and I just helped him with that, you know? So it's just, yeah, I'm lucky to have, you know, a great collection of friends. And of course here on the ground, I have, you know, my friend Jillian, who's been my friend since we were kids, who's our director. And then, of course, Adam Brazier, who has been, you know, a, is a theater veteran. And now I'm surrounded by great people who are yeah. very, very giving with their time. And it's going to make Telltale Harbor this summer be a great night out for people. Yeah, Alan Hawke, a great guy as well. Just a, just a great guy. You taught him to sing. He teaches you a bit how to act. And, and as yeah. you say, uh, all together now, Newfoundlanders, light tales for heavy times. One of the, uh, just a small project Doyle did over the uh, 
the COVID sitch. Uh, you know, it's interesting when you talk about this, though, Alan, because people often, as they get older, want to flee from the things where they're uncomfortable and go yeah. to the places where they're comfortable. Like, okay, I'm finally good at something. I'm com- finally comfortable within my own skin. That's yeah. what I'm going to do. The thing, one of the things I love about you, and I think I, and I'm very inspired by this, is that you are afraid. You're not afraid to be afraid. You're, you're not afraid to yeah. be uncomfortable. You're not afraid to continue to try something new. You don't say, God, what people might think I'm terrible and I'll wreck my reputation. No. What is it that keeps you fearless and so risk friendly? Well, you know, first of all, it's not really fearless because I find it terrifying. You know, I, I, I do. And like, I don't want to suck. And, I, you know, I've done lots of good stuff. So I don't want to add you know, something that's not good to the list. But of course, how do you, you know, how do you grow and continue to, you know, evolve as a person or certainly as an artist, unless you try stuff that you don't know how to do. Right. And, and, that, and, you know, it's just, for me, that's part of the road, right. That's part of it. And, and, uh, you know, I am scared of this, you know, and I am, but, you know, uh, and I am afraid to fail and I am afraid of all that stuff. I think like most people are, but, you know, I think that, um, I don't know. I guess my desire to to experience as much Mm. as I can in the artistic world is greater than my fear of failure in it, you know, and, and, you know, again, I I keep going back to, you know, people like, you know, Russell or Alan Hocko or Mark Critch or Jill or Adam, any of those people, they're, they're always so encouraging. And and I feel like I have an army of people behind me. You need that, right? Yeah. Your peer peer group's got to, like the one thing about anything for, and your kids are, when you're young, your peer group's got to push, like, you're most influenced by those around you, right? And people think, oh, I was I was influenced by that super speaker. I said, it's kind of like your buddies. Your peer group's going to change your life, right? Keep you on your toes. It is true. And, and you know, not to name all the famous Newfoundlanders, but the, uh, you know, Rick Mercer, you know, his his recent book, he speaks of this very thing. He speaks of how lucky he was to find the right peer group at the right yeah. time and, 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 and how important that was to him. And, you know, and Rick as well, you know, has done a million different things in the arts and entertainment world. He's been very encouraging about it. And, you know, I, I'm just, I'm stoked, man. I'm, I'm, I'm terrified, but I'm stoked. You're the best. Nothing in the world thrills me more than giving people a great night out. And Telltale Harbor is going to be a great night out for oh, people. Okay. Well, we got to see it. Go to PEI. Go to Charlottetown. See Alan Doyle and a great team in Telltale Harbor. Uh, listen, we need it, man. Uh, there's so much darkness in the world. Alan Doyle is one of those lights, producer, author, uh, just a great guy. I love you for coming on the show. Uh, break a leg on this. I know it's going to be a huge success. Folks, uh, the Bay de Nord uh, oil project in your own province is going to be greenlit today, likely at 4, and I'll see you on Power Play at 5.